Hello and welcome. Uh, this is the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and in this episode, I want to play you a recording of a talk that I gave uh, recently at a local high school. There was such a great energy in the room as I got to talk to around 70 kids, most of them 16 and 17 year olds, about how brainwashing works and how we are all, in some sense, uh, brainwashed. Those of you who have listened to this podcast regularly will know that I have touched on a few um, or more of these themes um, before, but there is some fresh stuff here too that I think you'll benefit from. Uh, you'll get uh, some of the usual high school stuff. There are interruptions and there's shushing and odd, an odd-sounding school bell included. But I hope you'll also get how much I enjoyed presenting the ideas here to those school kids. So, here you go. It's all yours, thanks, Duncan. Okay, uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, you, you didn't get a choice. No. So, um, welcome to your world. It basically is filled with you not getting many choices. So that's what I'm going to talk about, is, is brainwashing. And, and I thought I'd start with that image, just to give you a, an image of what brainwashing is not. Because, uh, I mean, it's this idea of cleaning out your head and being, you know... <laughs> But that's the opposite of what happens, of course. Brainwashing is basically uh, filling your head with all sorts of bizarre stuff. Okay, so, so there are tons of movies out there that deal with this idea of implanting ideas. Some of them, I'm, ho I'm presuming none of you have seen Blade Runner. Okay, there's a new one coming out, so you can watch that. I'm assuming very few of you have seen The Matrix. I did my master's degree on The Matrix, believe it or not. You can do that. Um, um, Inception, more recent, which is, you know, and then Total Recall has got two different versions, the first of which is very, very bad. And the sec second one is slightly less bad. Um, so there's this common kind of idea, and all of these films, right, that all of them, they have this idea of implanting ideas is difficult, right? Like you need special technology or you need to invent like whole realms of virtual reality to make it happen. So in, in one of these films, uh, Inception, one character's name is Arthur, and he gets asked if Inception is possible by one of the other characters whose name is Mr. Saito. Mr. Saito says, is Inception possible? Arthur says, absolutely not. It's impossible because the subject's mind can always trace the genesis of an idea. In other words, the subject, you, me, hopefully, uh, can always, always knows where the idea started. And so we can either accept it or reject it. So, so Inception is, according to Arthur, impossible. That makes sense, right? But it's, of course, completely rubbish. Um, there's a, a philosopher named Nathan Anderson who wrote this in a book called Inception and Philosophy. It does exist. He says, it's easy enough to deliver ideas. It's done all the time and without the need of any dream heist technology. That's what's used in Inception, the movie. All you need, just words and images and willing ears and eyes to make them stick, these ideas stick, requires either indoctrination through repetition and persuasion or the long, painstaking process of education. So, I have good news. This is also wrong. Um, inception just requires you to be there. 
and you are you are already being manipulated the minute you are there in whichever place this is wherever the ideas are and these ideas are not just ideas <coughs> there are things too chairs have manipulated you into thinking for instance that this is normal that you walk into a room and sometimes carry chairs into a room and you sit down and everything is fine you have been incepted you have been brainwashed already into thinking that's normal. So that's kind of what I, I want to deal with. How are we brainwashed? How is it that our thoughts are molded around specific ideas, beliefs, understandings of the world, etc.? So that's the central question that I want to ask and hopefully force you into, manipulate you basically, into a new way of thinking about what is really going on. I will use some science, neuroscience, a little bit of other stuff um, to, to help make this believable. The most effective form of idea implanting or inception is a combination of identification and trivial repetition. That's it. Identification is you simply being there. You identify with what's being said. Now, I'm going to use this as a basic example. I'm speaking, well, I hope, something that sounds a lot like English. You, I hope, understand English. We identify just at the basic... Some of you who have said, no, I don't. <laughs> How do you know? Okay, so at the basic level, there's just a basic idea of identification. We're on... The metaphor of this, the book is for this, we're on the same page. Just by talking the same language. We're already on the same page, and even if you're shaking your head, which maybe for other reasons, um, that is, that is, so, that's got something to do with that identification. You already understand the, the, the baseline from which we're working. And then the next step is trivial repetition. Just taking the thing and keeping on repeating it. How do you study, most of you? If you're doing something like a factual subject, like, like history, where you're dealing with data, you just repeat it. Parrot fashion, study, right? Like that's, because that's how you manipulate yourself into thinking that you know something. <laughs> I, I'm thinking, I'm just trust me, I'm thinking. Let me just read this uh, again for the 900th time. That is... Inception, that's implanting ideas into your own head. Very simple. I promise it gets much worse. As we go along, you'll start realizing how pervasive this is, um, and hopefully it'll blow your mind. So what repetition does, neurologically speaking, every th uh, this is a simplification, I realize this, but every thought that you have passes through a neural pathway created by all sorts of things that are going on inside your physical brain, those neural pathways get stronger and stronger the more you repeat an idea. So, and the, the, their connections, they're complex and all of that, but they just get stronger and stronger. And that's why, by the way, the same thing happens when you pick up a new cell phone. And you have to quickly get used to the new operating system that it has, right? And initially it might be a little bit foreign to you, slightly, <laughs> for most of you, like a piece of cake, <laughs> quickly launch satellite, <coughs> do that, control America from my, this app, <laughs> elect Donald Trump, okay, <laughs> so there's, <laughs> but, but there's, a, but you know, like, who of you, are, are any of you learning to drive yet? 
Okay. How was the first time you went? Did it go really well? Okay. So mostly the first time you try something out, it's a bit tricky. But as you repeat the action, you get used to it. And then you just do it later on when you get your license. It's just piece of cake. You occasionally have an accident. But, but it's just, it just becomes a lot easier. That's what repetition does. The neural pathways are much stronger. You get to operate in a, a much more fluid way with the thing that you've been manipulated by. So, here's the thing that I want you to keep in mind. Because our mere presence to things is enough to change us, our brains mirror the things we use to think with. In particular, technologies and media. But I want to talk about basic technologies. Language. Specifically, written language. Okay, so you think written language is just, it's just there, right? But it's actually the fact that you're speaking that, lang that language, that specific language, is changing the way you think. One example is, sentences have a big, well, you know this stuff, noun, you know, noun, verb, that kind of object kind of structure. There's a start, there's a middle, there's an end, and it gets more complicated as you go along. But that basic structure teaches your brain to believe that truth must involve some form of logic. And logic is linear. And so you believe that truth is only that, because that's how language works. A uh, more obvious example. Have you seen people walk into a supermarket that when they're on the way into the supermarket, there's this kind of urgency. I know what I'm doing. And the minute they walk in, there's this kind of <laughs> daze. <laughs> right? Have you seen that, right? So there's this kind of daze. What, why? The lighting in a supermarket is much brighter. What that does is it focuses our visual attention so much that all of our other senses are dulled. We hardly ever even notice the music that's playing. <laughs> Hello? So that's, uh, but that's what I mean. Just you being there is changing the way you think. Okay, so just you being in that space. People, you, you know this, every, okay, every medium that you have is an extension of some part of your, your body, right? So a cell phone extends your ears and your voice out into space when you're talking. I mean, when you're... It just ex extends your thumbs out into space when you're tiny, whatever. But, okay, so, like, yeah, I have super long thumbs. Um, I don't know what that thought means. Uh, but when you're talking on that cell phone, what's interesting is because it's extended those senses, auditory and, and vocal, out into space, all of your other senses dull. So, for instance, studies have been done that show that people talking on cell phones and driving are worse sometimes than drunk drivers. Yeah. Right? So just, just holding the technology is changing the whole structure of your brain. Just holding it. You don't, you're not thinking consciously about it, because I think we want to go around thinking that we are in control of our lives, and we decide, and we get to... No. You are you're absolutely in sync with the media and technologies around you, and that's actually changing your brain. Clothes extend skin into space. So there's that, that line that some people say, you are what you wear. It changes your perception of yourself. 
just when you wear slightly different clothes. Isn't that weird? You are still you, but just by wearing those different clothes, you are now someone else. You have a different perception of yourself, right? So all of this stuff is ch every single thing. The way you write, using cell phones, cars, walking, changes your brain in a particular way from running to using jet skis on concrete paving. All of these things are changing your brain. So part of what I want to point out here is that we have this basic idea that we have a, there's an objective reality. It's out there, right? Out there. And then there's my subjective <coughs> impression of that. Impression is quite a nice word. It's like uh, a stamp. You know, there's the reality and it, it's, there's an impression. And that there is a clear line between those two. I want you to just think about this, uh, let's think about this chair. I'm going to hold up a chair. This is, it has this. Tell me at which point does this chair end and the, the idea of the chair that you have in your head begin? <laughs> which point this chair is the thing you're thinking about? And you think about it as outside of you. But where is the line between this chair outside of you and the idea that you have in your head? Part of what I'm getting at is... Okay, so I know this is a weird, complex idea. Believe me, it gets much worse. Uh, in, in, in theory, people are actually grappling with these ideas. Your subjective experience and the objective world, right? There is no division between those two. There is no division. You can't say, well, at this point I recognize that this thing is my subjective experience or impression of the thing. And that is the objective thing. You can't tell because they're the same thing in your head. Yeah, so you, you can have all sorts of... But th this complicates things. It means that reality is much more subjective and much more objective than you thought it was. But I will move on before I confuse everyone. So here's an example. Uh, Kate Winslet was asked to pose for a photo for GQ. The more perceptive of you will notice that she her proportions have changed for the final magazine cover, right? There's a ma Do you know of this? Okay, so a lot of Photoshop was done. Kate Winslet is a, a very strong advocate for for realistic, uh, having a creating a realistic view of people. Um, I think there are problems with that ideology and what actually you see in the, the original photo, but let's not go into that. But here's the thing. Here's the question I want to ask you: What if you know that the image has been manipulated? So you know this. Like, we all see magazine covers everywhere, and we know these people look eerily perfect. And their teeth are like, everything is just pristine. But you know that it's a fiction, right? You know it's been photoshopped. So it doesn't make a difference to you, right? So here's what I'm getting at. Your conscious knowledge about that, you know consciously that the image has been manipulated. Therefore, you shouldn't worry so much about the false impression it creates for you. But here's what I'm saying. Your conscious knowledge means nothing. 
your sense experience, it doesn't mean nothing in general, I'm just saying in terms of the experience of the image. Your conscious knowledge does not affect the fact that the image has already changed your perception. The image has already shaped you before you have any ideas about what it means and how it, how it makes you respond. Okay? It's the same thing as the line between your subjective experience and the objective reality does not exist. You are being changed by every form of media that you get confronted with. I'm going to use a great example. That's so true. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> the, in the X-Men, the first X-Men movie, which was alarmingly 17 years ago, and then um, more recently, okay, even more recently, there was the movie Logan, which I, I hope very few of you have seen, <laughs> but I'm sure you've pretty much seen it. Um, uh, very, very violent. But you've got, so, this Hugh Jackman, for every movie, had to kind of redouble his efforts to look more and more comic book-like. Okay. But, here's the thing, proportionally, comic book characters in the drawing form, in the drawn form, have different pr proportions from real human beings. Okay, so, the, just an example, uh, the figure on the left is a normal uh, a male figure, it's seven and a half heads tall, that, that's how many heads go into that figure. Most idealistic portraits of men it just make that eight, right? And so the proportions change. You'll see that the, the shape of the torso is much more V-shaped, right? And that m most comic book drawings of men, I'm, I'm using men as an example, but of course it applies to um, representations of women too, but most comic book um, things use eight and a half heads as proportions. So now, intellectually, you know, real people don't look like that. They don't. It's just impossible. But, you've already been changed by the image. And Hollywood has already adopted those images as their guidepost for how they should cast characters, how, how those characters should gym and exercise to get ready for those roles. So you have these unrealistic impressions of what it takes to look like a superhero, for instance. But, you know that, but it doesn't matter. Your brain has already been shaped by it. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so here's another question. Is there a difference between emotion experienced when watching a film versus emotion experienced in real life? This is a question that researchers have actually, actually taken up. They wanted to figure out, like, is there are different centers in the brain highlighted when we experience a real emotion, happiness, sadness, joy, anger, versus when we experience an emotion when we're watching a film. Is there a difference between those two kinds of emotion? Who, what would you say? Yes? Who says yes? Okay, a few of you, okay? Who says no? Okay, you're getting the idea. No. There is no... If you're watching a film, like, this does happen... So this is... Um, <coughs> Captain Phillips, I think the film is, is called. So it's a very traumatizing film. There's a, a hostage situation. It's, Tom Hanks goes through hell. How he lives through it, I don't know. Except that it's fake. But anyway, so, like, and that's the thing. Hollywood is creating things that are fake to create real experiences. Those experiences are still real. 
And if you watch that and are traumatized by what those characters go through, the trauma is in fact real. You need therapy. I'm not kidding. So it's, it's like, it's like we, we think, oh, no, 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 there's distance. So if you watch like more, more disturbing films, that's changing you. Okay. It, it gets more interesting, trust me. Because um, you think you chose your friends. <laughs> okay. My, uh, by the way, uh, why do you just keep it down? Part of my aim here is to destabilize your conception of reality. I want you to be unsettled by how little you understand. Because at school everything is simple. At university I call it life disorientation. Um, because that's where you start to realize that every narrative you've been given is not bad, but it's too simple often. So here's how our brains work. We have these neurons that, uh, there's lots of extensive research that's been done on this called mirror neurons. These mirror neurons, their whole job is to create an imagined impression of something outside inside you. An example, when I raise my hand, there's, there's a section in my brain that's lighting up, that's all well, if you were to read this through a scanner of some kind. There's a section in my brain that is controlling this movement. Believe it or not, the research shows that in all of your heads, those exact same neurons are lighting up. Okay, exactly the same ones in the same part of your brain. You are not lifting up your hand right now, but you are actually lifting up your hand. That's true. Cool, right? Every single thing you see and experience, someone else is having an experience, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath, okay, there's the problems there, broken mirror neurons, but anyway, like, everything you see someone else experience, you are experiencing that same thing, vicariously through them, but you still experience it. So human beings are natural imitators. We learn by imitating. That's why we have teachers. And that's why we have mentors, etc. Because we need to learn from, so always through someone else, right? So I'm, I'm going to take this as just a classic example of how this work, works. There was an experiment done, and this was the, these were the findings. Couples who originally bore no particular resemblance to each other when first married had, after 25 years of marriage, come to resemble each other, although the resemblance may sometimes have been subtle according to a new research, research report. Moreover, the more marital happiness a couple reported, the greater their increase in facial resemblance. The increase in facial similarity results from decades of shared emotions. That, by the way, I think is a simplification. But you spend a lot of time with certain people, you will actually start to look like them. Physically. <laughs> By the way, I, I haven't even begun to blow your mind. <laughs> I'm very glad that you're starting to go, what? <laughs> okay. 
So I've, I've talked about our brains mirror the tools we use to work with. I've already said that. I'm saying something more than that. Our brains mirror the people we spend time with. Our friends. It's interesting, when you meet friends, there's a period in which you're starting to get to know each other. And then there's a period in which you start to become like each other. Right? And then your own ideas, you forget about them. Because you're busy thinking your friend's thoughts, not your own. And you don't know where the line between those things ends and where it begins. Because there is no line. Okay, so you have been taught in this school, not another one, that has shaped you because of the kind of culture and ethos of the school. That's a really good thing. Maybe there are pitfalls. The same would be true of any other, any other school. Okay, no problem. School is more chaotic than university, I'm, I'm discovering. I've, I've forgotten that. At university, you just have protests, and occasionally people set fire to buildings. So, let's talk about um, imitation. Now, we think imitation is a terrible... Let's not imitate other people. Um, you'll find that in the Bible, this notion of imitation is super important. So, I'm going to just read one of the, these, just to give you a... Well, maybe, maybe two. Okay, so, in 1 Corinthians 4, 6... Uh, Paul writes, I urge you to imitate me. So Paul is saying, by the way, so Paul is saying, become like me. That's why he's just copy me. Become a copycat. Is imitate me. This is why I sent Timothy to you. He's my faithful child, blah, blah, blah. He is going to remind you of the way of Jesus, which, by the way, is what I'm trying to do. So there's this constant thing of imitation. The second one, you are to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And there are lots of places where, specifically, Paul talks about this idea of imitating um, to learn, to become more like someone else. Because you are never yourself. You are never yourself, you are always someone else. It's much easier to not have to be yourself. Everyone's like, be yourself! What is that? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so if we take on the characteristics of our world, what is the thing that changes the most? We, cha we change when we use technologies. We change when we spend time, time around people. We may even physically resemble them at some point. But what is the thing that changes most? And this is where it gets really... By the way, if you understand this, you'll understand the whole meaning of life and how everything works, um, which is pretty cool. But I realize that this is... I'm basically planting a seed. No, I'm throwing a grenade. That's more... <laughs> like, yeah, have this grenade. Think about it. <laughs> okay, the thing that changes the most... The thing that changes the most... Is what we want. Our actual desires are shaped. That's the thing that's happening when we use technology to spend time with people. Our actual desires, what we want... So what do you want? What someone else wants. Um, our edu even education is more about changing desires than it is about filling you up with information. You're going to forget most of what you've learned. You, go you are. That's just one of the facts of life. You're going to forget a lot of what you actually learned at school. You may even forget this. 
I'm, uh, I'm fully aware of that. But it will shape the way you desire. It will still be that. Kind of have to trust me on this, but let me explain it. Using Genesis, Eve, who at this point looks like a businesswoman, um, she had no interest in that fruit, which in this joke is an apple. Um, she had no interest in that fruit. None. And then the serpent said, hey, Eve, don't you want this fruit? And she initially goes, no, we're not supposed to. And then she's like, but, but hey, it does look very nice. But you'll notice in the story, Eve wants the fruit because there's a serpent telling her the fruit is good. You should have the fruit because I say so. And she goes, sure, this is how advertising works. You don't want this product, but you do actually, I know that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. nudge. So that's how that works. Uh, whatever, like, subtle. Um, I think this is a much uh, more provocative image. I've actually done, uh, bizarrely enough, some of my research has been on zombie movies, so I was like, you know. So you can do pretty cool things. I get paid to do research on zombie movies. It's not, it's not true, that's not the whole job. <laughs> but what is the zombie contagion? The zombie contagion is what? Bunch of zombies, one person gets bitten by zombies, becomes like zombies. Suddenly, b before the, that person had no interest in eating brains, gross. But afterwards, they're like, brains, pretty good. I mean, with less emotion and all of that stuff. So but they, they want the brain be just because they have the contagion. So that's kind of what I want to give you this. The actual change of desire is a contagion. It is always catching. It is the flu, but the flu of desire. By the way, I'm going to just use this as an example. I'm sure you've never seen anything like this. So you kind of have a sort of interest in this, in this girl or boy, depending on who you are. And, your and you mention this to a friend, and they're like, yeah, she slash he is very nice. And then you're like, wait, wait, yeah, no, that's true. What, what's happening? Your two desires like escalate each other until you are convinced that you're in love. It, it, it might never happen to you, but the, your desire is shaped. You want that person, not because you want that person, because we. <laughs> Say, I am in love. Say, we are in love. So, at one point, Apple computers were not the big thing, right? Microsoft was the big thing. And then that contagion that wanted the Apple computer started growing. And people started wanting that computer. And now everyone wants an Apple. I'm just using that as an example. But it could be anything, right? When, when your friend says, hey, I saw this movie. I pretty much enjoyed it. You're like, I should go and see that. Or I, should, I don't know what you do. I should go and steal that. There's a thing that... <laughs> but you all... But we don't steal movies. We steal movies. Okay? So there's... 
everything, it's just being a zombie, but I think technology works the same. I think technology can actually act as a mediator of our desires too. So, whether it's people or technologies, our desires are always being mediated to us, for us. We want what we want because others want it. I'm going to use this as a really great example. Solomon Ash, who is a, or was, I think he's, he's now, he's very old, he's dead. Um, <laughs> Solomon Ash did this experiment called the Ash Experiment, famously. And part of the experiment was he would he'd get a group of people, let's say there are 10 people in the group. Those people would pitch up and he'd give them a line on the left, he'd show this in, in a card form, line on the left, and he'd say to this group of people, which line on the right is like the line on the left? But what Solomon Ash did is he told nine of those people, nine of the ten people, to give deliberately the wrong answer. Cool, right? So, predictably, the tenth person came along and said, I think line B is like the line on the left. Here's... Now, we know... Come on. That's so... Hello. But Gregory Burns, a neuroscientist, redid this experiment recently. Same idea, but this time he put people into brain scanners to actually check what's happening in the brain. When this is, are they lying? Is the basic question. What did he dis he discovered that the person didn't lie; they literally saw that line B was the correct line. Okay then. They literally, just by being in the presence of other people, their actual perceptions of the world were changed. Now, the funny thing is, all the people that were lying, they, they could see the, the wrong thing. They were just naming it as the right thing. The person who was being influenced by just being in that context, that person actually saw differently. Okay, so I hope you're starting to go, I wonder who I'm hanging out with that's good for me right now. Um, so brainwashing is, thank goodness, inevitable. You will always be brainwashed just by being you and being in the world. Welcome. Uh, that's how it works. But I hope we can agree there are good and bad forms of brainwashing. Um, our brainwashing is, by the way, approximately equal to what we take as normal. So if you want, so what I mean here is, if you want to figure out what you've been brainwashed by, just look at the world and go, what do I think is normal? What do I not question, is another way of saying it. The thing you don't question is your brainwashing. The minute you go, let me pick up my phone and just like, whatever, do that. That's brainwashing. The minute you start to assume some kind of status quo, well, that is your brainwashing. You, you all think it's, as I've said, normal to sit on chairs. In some cultures, that's not true. Okay? Some people don't learn inside a classroom, and that is their normal. Okay? You think this is perfectly normal. Okay, so just be aware of this. This is how it's going to shape you. So an example is the roles, attitudes, or jobs, or clothes of men and women. We think it's perfectly normal that men don't wear dresses. But we know cultures where they wear things that look like dresses. And we say, it's a bunch of weirdos. No, they're just adopting their normal and your normal doesn't match theirs. That's really all that's going on. So a lot of the things you take as normal 
you get introduced to a new idea. I mean, I realize I'm introducing quite a few new ideas. It's not that many, but I'm introducing these new ideas, and you're going, whoa, like, whoa, this is, you might be going, no. So maybe there's that reaction to, in you. No, I don't want to believe this. Well, the fact that you don't want to believe it is rooted in your normal. Whatever you take as normal, that thing should be rejected. So this is very interesting when, you, when it gets to groups, because the people you don't like, maybe, I mean, there could be complex reasons for that, but they just offend your normal. So, by the way, I do want to mention this just because it's a fun idea. Jesus' central ethic, what is it? What is his central ethic, his approach to doing the right thing? Love. He says it in, in the form of the golden rule. You've heard this, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You could add if you were them. Um, there is a constant awareness of the, the way that your desires are being mediated in that process. It's amazing. He doesn't say do unto others as you want to do just because you want to do it. Because, you, because that's impossible. It's a very brilliant, I mean, we don't have time to go into that, but it's a really brilliant ethic because it allows for otherness. So, what, questions. Why is the word men usually before women? Because it is, and we're used to it. Um, why is Mr. usually put for, before Mrs.? Now, it's very interesting, in the Bible, this is subverted in the book of, of Acts, Romans, and Timothy, where Priscilla and Aquila... They're mentioned as Aquila and Priscilla, but Priscilla is the woman. The Bible, by the way, you know this, I mean, this is obvious stuff, is one of the first feminist texts. It's one of the first things that saw that equality between the sexes is, should be the norm. Right? So, deliberately subversive. The early church was led mostly in those days by women. The reason we have Christianity today is because women were the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So, I mean, like, we could go into the theology of this, but it's very interesting. Why are there three titles for women and only one for men? And why does Ms. always really just mean Miss? But how else do you sig signal to the world of men in an age where, because this, this comes from a bygone age, but how do you tell men who are really looking for um, spouses who's single? Because the, in those ages, like, people would address them as Mr. or Miss or Ms. or, like, they wouldn't call them by their first names. Because it was a society that was geared towards making men happy. That was really the, so you can see already the inequality just in titles. Right? Very interesting. Um, or, or not, I don't know. <laughs> so, here's the thing. Norms develop around desires. Desire focuses your whole way of living. Everything. Desire focuses your will, what you want, what you believe, what you understand. Every single thing about you is hinged on desire. <coughs> what you want. And what you want is always, every single time, copied from someone else, someone else or someone's else. It's, it's plural, it's like this massive thing. So what matters immensely is, is what you actually pay attention to. Um, so Paul mentions this in Philippians 4 verse 8. Um, 
Whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, pay attention to those things. That's what we need to focus on. Why? Because simply being present to them will change you. Um, so um, I, I do want to point out, so you don't get to choose that you are always copying your desires. You will always be, every single desire you have is copied from somewhere, right? By the way, a lot of what being an adolescent is, is breaking your desires from your parents. But then you have to copy someone's desires, so you start copying your friends. Peer pressure is born. By the way, peer pressure never goes away. It is there right throughout your life, if, unless you're, you're aware of it. Okay, so that's why we pay attention to what we're immersed in, because that's the only choice we have. We get to choose, basically, which direction we point our head. That's it. Just being present to things will change us. Um, does this mean being a, becoming a cultural Philistine? Um, generally, Christians live in a bubble. That's just one of the things that... So, and part of it is like, oh, the world, the world is... I mean, that's a misunderstanding of what the Bible talks about when it's talking about the world. But the world is this terrible thing. Uh, we need to run away from it. That's not entirely true. It just means being uh, more conscientious. So... I want you to think about th this idea that th we need to train our unconscious minds, that bit of ourselves that we're not aware of, because our conscious mind is 5% of who we are. 95, uh, cognitive scientists suggest this. 95% of ourselves is unconscious. Everyone, we are 5% away from being the walking dead. I mean, it's really just like... You are almost a zombie. And part of the deal here is to train your unconscious so that you are at least not just a zombie. Okay, a habit, I mean, there, there's a myth that it takes 21 days to, to form a habit. It doesn't, it can take around 18 days, but it can also take 8 months. So that's what a habit is. How, if you set up those habits now, by the way, you're going to be in a really good place in, in a few years' time because it's all done. All the work has been done. You, you can also like, work yourself into a good way of living. So, to quote uh, Lao Tzu, watch your thoughts, they become words. I'm, I'm going to, like, before that, watch what you're paying attention to. That's the first thing. And then he says, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. And then watch your character because it becomes your destiny. It is a bit cheesy, but it's kind of cool because there is some truth in it.